Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. If you're hungry for that encounter, if you're dying to know the love of God, which alone makes sense out of life, if you're longing to know that you matter so much and that His power can fill you with all that you need so that you can be the man or the woman that you want to be, then join me and dig into the scriptures and the teachings of the church so that we can find the life that Jesus has made us for. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. On this program, Father Ricardo talks about preparation for marriage. How much preparation did we receive? As he delves into the topic, he raises the question, especially for women, can we trust what the Bible says about marriage? Is it outdated? Is it patriarchal or is it oppressive? Here's Father John Ricardo and Marriage, God's Love Made Visible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this day and for the precious gift of life that you've entrusted to all of us. Father, we want to thank you tonight in a special way for the beautiful gift of marriage and for the gift of your word. Lord, we're mindful that we are not nearly as much as we should be people of the scriptures, but therein is found life and truth and your plan for us and especially your plan for marriage. So we pray that you would continue to open our eyes to what it is that you have revealed, continue to clear away the cobwebs and the fears and the misconceptions that we might have, help us to know the truth and to live it well so that we might be ever more authentic witnesses in the world in which we live of the beauty of the life that only you can give us. So may your Holy Spirit be the unseen guest in this room tonight. All this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Some of you, marriage prep was some time ago. How many people never had marriage prep? I mean, your marriage prep consisted of you met with the priest a couple of times or didn't meet with anybody. Wow. And you're still together. That's amazing. That's an act of God. How many of those of you who did have marriage prep and who met with a... Let's, let's limit it to those of you who received marriage prep from a Catholic church. Aside from the little booklet that had the scripture readings in it that you were supposed to pick out the readings you wanted for the Mass, aside from being given that booklet... How many of you received any instruction in marriage prep from the Word of God? Few. Can you say what it was? <laughs> Made a lasting impact, huh? Okay. Anybody remember what it was? What did you get? Pray together. Just so we hear again the question. How many of you remember that the core component of marriage preparation was the Word of God? I mean, thanks be to God, we've got people like Joe Maniazak and, and so many who come in who help, you know, is marriage counseling with our couples. We've got people who come in for finances. We've got people who come in, does communication. We've got people who come in and talk about conflict resolution. We've got people coming in talking about all sorts of different issues. Isn't it a little troubling that there is no core session or number of sessions as you are preparing to enter into an institution which Christ instituted from the Word of God? Aren't you a little disturbed by that? So what we want to do tonight, I don't want to talk so much about the spirituality of marriage. I want to really focus in on some texts from Scripture, although I really want to focus in on one. But the question really, I think for lots of us here, and maybe especially women, is can we trust what the Bible says about marriage? Because it appears to our 21st century American ears very much to be not just outdated, but darn right patriarchal or oppressive or even offensive. So if nothing else tonight, what I want to try to do is to restore a little confidence in the word of God by opening up our eyes to one text which you have in your handout, which we're going to look at at length here which is Ephesians 5, and really the radical nature of what's revealed in Ephesians 5. Those of you who belong to the parish might remember a couple of years ago at our parish mission, we had two redemptorist priests come in, and the Sunday when he was preaching at all the masses, 
he kind of just threw out the question to everybody. How many of you have ever heard a priest talk about Ephesians 5? You know, and nobody raises their hand. Well, my dissertation's on Ephesians 5, so you're going to hear about it in spades tonight. And it just so happens that last year we had Ephesians 5 in August when I was on vacation. It was either in August or it was in October when I was in Rome. And I thought, oh, goodness, we just missed another chance to preach about this. But you're going to hear about it tonight, um, at least in a nutshell kind of form. So the goal tonight is really a modest one, to be honest with you. Given the short time that we have, I want to just try to really restore some confidence in Scripture and to shatter some misconceptions that we have. And then I also want to help us to be able to respond to those who may be in our families or who we work with or we hear comments from about the radical nature of this text. As we begin, let me just make a little disclaimer. We are all here in very different marital situations, regardless of how it may look to those on the outside or how it may appear to family and friends. There are some of us here who are pretty much on the same path spiritually and at the same point spiritually, and there are others of us who are not, and not at all. There are some of us who are both Catholic And there are some of us who are in mixed marriages. Some of us are just beginning to really maybe turn our lives over to the Lord. It's one of the constant things that I hear in doing marriage counseling is my husband or my wife has changed. Well, I would hope so. That means that he or she is alive. When you stop changing, you're dead. And usually when they make that comment, they're not real happy. I was just saying at Bible study yesterday, I'm amazed how many times I'll hear one of the spouses say about the other spouse, I want him or her back the way he was or the way she was, which is to say, I do not like the fact that God is so prominent a part of his or her life. We use the image all the time, you know, the triangle, the more you climb up both sides of the triangle to the point, you not only get closer to God, God's the tip of the triangle, you get closer to one another. The two sides of the triangle get closer together. So there's no way that by getting closer to God, it should be a threat to marriage. In fact, you can't understand marriage without being close to God. And we're going to try to look at some of that tonight. There are lots of places in Scripture that we can look at for some wisdom on different situations. Two in particular would be 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And another passage would be 1 Corinthians 7, verses 13 to 14. I really want to speak and concentrate our attention on what has been called repeatedly by scholars who know this text, the greatest, the most beautiful, and the most sublime passage in all the Bible, which is Ephesians 5. Even here, I'm just going to scratch the surface, but hopefully I can kind of whet your appetites to want to do more, and we can talk about how we can do more as we go further along. Second point before we dive in, most of what we do when we get together for this series, which has been such a wonderful series, most of what we do is very practical. Like we're going to talk about fighting fair. So here's 10 steps to fighting fair. Or we're going to talk about finances. Here's a workbook so that you can get your financial situation in order. Last time we got together was on reconciliation and forgiveness. Here's some steps to do that you can reconcile. Tonight's something very different. We're going to talk about something more basic than practical application. That's very important to do, to be sure, but I don't want to do that. That's what the rest of the series really is all about. I want to talk more about what it means to be and particularly what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife. Because if we don't understand what it means to be a husband or a wife, we will never understand what we're supposed to do as a husband or a wife. We can become inordinately preoccupied in our culture with functionalism. Like, what do I do? But there's a basic philosophical principle that action follows being. We're in the mess that we're in on many levels in the country. Because we don't know anything about being, we just want to know about doing. And so we just react, but we have to learn to be. So until we know who we're supposed to be as disciples, as husbands, as wives, as priests, we're never going to know what we are to do. Beatitudes are a great illustration of that. Jesus is just giving us modes of being. Blessed are those who have a disposition of mercy or of purity or of kindness Once I have the disposition, then the actions just kind of flow from that. So Ephesians 5 really gives us zero, and I mean zero, practical advice. It's not theoretical. It's all on the level of being. So hopefully tonight will be uh, really a chance to, as we hear the word of God and reflect upon what it says there, to ask him to convict us 
to expose those attitudes in our hearts that are contrary to his, to expose those things within us as a husband or a wife which do not belong in a Christian marriage, let alone in any marriage. So let's look at the text. I've given you the translation that's found in the Revised Standard Version, which we'll see is um, not exactly the best. Beginning in verse 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands. This is usually where you tune out, right? The little elbow comes flying in from the husband. Hear that, honey? And this is why we think that Scripture is patriarchal and oppressive. Be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, some objections to this text. There is a claim made by not a few scholars that what we've just read and seen is simply an adoption of a pagan genre of writing about marriage, which enshrines patriarchal domination. And the claim here is twofold. First, that Ephesians and some other passages like it, like First Peter 3 that we already mentioned, and Colossians 3, looks a lot like a very typical kind of literature of the time known as a household code. That's the first claim. Second claim is that in in adopting this household code, the Christians, in putting texts like Ephesians 5 into the Bible, basically caved in and just succumbed to the pressures of the society that was around them and made their model for family life and marriage the same as the world around them. I don't want to spend time addressing the first claim. I really want to focus on the second one. Because if that's true, then the text we just heard, we should rip up and throw out. In fact, there are people who've done that. There's a radical group of feminists who take it upon themselves to go through the scriptures and they do an exorcism ceremony and they actually rip out certain texts of the scriptures and as they rip them out they say this evil text has no hold on us and we reject it this is one of the texts that they do that with so the idea has been spread this is again this contention by some scholars that jesus came and and pretty much just totally disrupted the social and political world in which he was living. And he did it by establishing a pattern of life where equalitarianism ruled. So there was no distinction of any kind between men and women. There were no leaders, or if they were, they included both men and women. And the early church continued in this style of life for a number of years. But after some time had gone by, the realization finally sinks in that Jesus isn't coming back imminently. The Christians, because of pressure that's put upon them, they just caved in, gave up, and put texts like this in 1 Peter 3 and Colossians 3 into the New Testament to basically say, there's nothing to worry about from us. We're just like you. We're not a threat to the empire. Don't kill us. So they just lost their nerve, is the claim made by a number of scholars. So their way of thinking is that the Christians did this to say, see, we're just like you are. We make our women obey us just like you do. That's um, rubbish would be too weak a word, but the other word wouldn't be appropriate in a place like this. So it's simply nonsense, and we're going to try and poke some holes in that as we go. Suffice at the beginning to say that what we hear in Ephesians 5 is absolutely and entirely new. Aside from sharing the word husband and wife, 
what's in Ephesians 5 isn't like anything in any non-Christian piece of writing about marriage. So I want to go into just a little detail on the text. If you have a Bible, great. I want to try to point out a couple of things that the sacred author, who's either Paul or some brilliant disciple of Paul, is trying to communicate, and in particular is trying to communicate to us tonight about being a husband or being a wife. And I want to try to do three things here. First, to help us to really put on more of a scriptural mind as regards marriage. Second is to shatter some misconceptions that we almost certainly have. And third is to arouse a greater hunger in us to study scripture more. And we can give some ideas as to how to do that in the end. So I want to do that by highlighting four words which I've put on the outline, and I've put them on your outline in English. And the first word is the word that's translated in the text that I gave you as be subject to. But that's not what the word means. Some of you may have in your Bible, it might say be subordinate to a really bad translation might say obey. The Greek word here is hypotasso, and it does not mean be subject, and it certainly doesn't mean obey. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament, except for that text that I already gave you, 1 Peter chapter 3, in an allusion back to Genesis in the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, aside from that, nowhere in the New Testament is the vision of marriage that's presented from God one where the wife obeys her husband. That is not biblical. The word literally means to place under. Where do we find it in scripture? It's found a number of places. I'll just give you a few so that you can look them up if you'd like. Most importantly, it's found to describe Christ and his relationship with the father. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. It also refers, as we saw here in verse 21, as the whole Christian congregation to one another. It describes, as we see here in this text, members of the household to the head of the household. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 32, it refers to those with prophetic gifts. Where does the term come from? Again, some of these scholars will claim that the term is merely a borrowing of a common way of speaking about the relationship between a husband and wife that is found in the culture at large. So again, the claim continues. This text merely reaffirms patriarchal domination, but now it's codified in scripture and it should be discarded at best if not despised in 600 years from 400 bc to 200 a.d so 600 years surrounding the writing of this text this word which we translate as in the text in front of us right now be subject to though it doesn't mean that shows up twice in 600 years of literature on marriage it shows up twice the wonders of things you can do with computers huh One of those is from well after the time of Ephesians is written. So one time this word shows up describing a relationship between a husband and a wife in the culture surrounding the Christians. This is an entirely new way of speaking about marriage. It is not at all the baptizing of a patriarchal male-dominated home. It is a radical idea that's being put forth. And it's an entirely new way of describing a wife's relationship with her husband. So what does it mean? Well, first of all, the fact that it refers to Christ and his relationship with the Father tells you that it can't have anything to do with being oppressed. Jesus is not oppressed by the Father. He's not dominated by the Father. He's not insulted or offended by his Father. It has to do with following the example of Christ who willingly humbled himself and took the lowest place. God has become an infant. Here we are in all our pride and arrogance. God has become a helpless infant and is lying in a trough out of which animals eat. He is trying to teach us something. This is to be the life of every Christian and of every disciple. It has to do with humility and servanthood which are at the core of the Christian life. It doesn't have something to do only with women. It has to do with all of us. In fact, it's demanded in verse 21 of all of us. In fact, it's worth remembering right now that this text is written to Christians. So how you and I react to this text being proclaimed might just tell us something about the level of our faith. It's important to know that this word actually doesn't show up in verse 22. The text literally reads, Be, we'll use subject to because that's the word that's on your translation. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, 
to your husbands. The word's not there. A little bit later on, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives in everything to their husbands. There is no verb there. There's been some people who've said that that's just a common way of speaking in Greek, but that can't be the case here because we're using words which show up here like love, as we're going to see later, isn't omitted in the same way that this word is being omitted. There's a significance to that, many people think. It's not softening what's being said to the wife. The significance is more it's a reminder that this command is to the whole Christian community to do this, to have this way of being with each other. It must be carried over then from the preceding verse because it describes the entire Christian community. So we can say right now that what we're seeing in Ephesians 5, what we should be seeing, although we're going to read this with the glasses that we've got on, describes a relationship between husband and wife that is joyful, voluntary, free, and a thankful partnership. The idea behind this word, hypotasso, is for the wife as a free and responsible person to willingly and voluntarily place herself under her husband's loving care as someone who is equal to him in dignity. And this is not a command. This is an exhortation. Wives are exhorted, encouraged, to literally, we could say, subordinate themselves. So again, so we understand what's being said here, wives as women who are equal in dignity to your husbands freely choose to place yourself, to do this action to yourself, to place yourself under his loving care. It has nothing to do with being servile or with being subject to Indeed, when a person is voluntarily amenable to another and gives way to him and places himself at the other's service, he shows far greater dignity and freedom than an individual who cannot bear to be a helper and partner to anyone but himself. And in acting this way, the person is simply imitating Jesus. Remember that great passage in Philippians 2? Have this mind amongst yourselves that Christ Jesus, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So in doing this, in having this attitude, this way of being, all the wife is doing is imitating Jesus. So it is an attitude for all of us to have as Christians, But maybe we can say that in the text here, it's uh, in a particular way an exhortation to the wives to surrender their will and their rights to their husband, which should immediately make you realize that that can't happen unless he's demonstrated that there's something worth surrendering to, which brings up the next word, head or kephale in Greek. And the term can mean either source or authority over. And it is told to the husband to be his role. He is head of his wife. We think this way all the time, but the husband is not the head of the family, at least not scripturally. That might be true in other ways. But according to scripture, he's not head of the family. He's head of his wife. So we want to try to figure out what that means. But he is only head of his wife, only head, as Christ is head of the church. Therefore, if you as husbands don't know him who is head of his bride, us, you can't know what it means to be a husband. And the more you come to know him as head of us all, the more you understand what it means to be a husband. And then hopefully how it is that you are supposed to act as a husband. So in understanding this term, hopefully we'll be able to see how a husband is supposed to subordinate himself to his wife, and he is also supposed to do that. It's found in Scripture in lots of places. I'll just give you a couple of quick references. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, and then 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. What does it mean? Well, here we find ourselves in front of a term that was used to describe the head of the house's role, but now it's being used in an entirely new way. Because the term is applied to the husband only as a result of its use of Christ and of the analogy between Christ and the husband. So the only way we're going to understand this term is to understand the context in Ephesians. It has nothing to do with how it was used in any non-Christian literature because non-Christian literature didn't use it in reference to Jesus. 
And in talking about Christ as the head of the church, the imagery is clearly suggesting some role of authority to which the church is subordinate. But this authority is entirely determined by the exercise of Christ's authority. How does Christ exercise his headship? Let's look at the Gospels. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. Jesus called his disciples to them and said, You know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord it over them. How appropriate this is for many people in government and for any position of authority. And their great men exercise authority over them. Or in one translation, it says they make their authority felt. Ever worked for somebody who made their authority felt? I am in charge and you are not. We've all had that experience. But, Jesus says, it can't be like that for you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Christ's authority. Therefore, that's the model for the husband in trying to understand what it means to be a head. So headship is not merely some mark of privilege. It is an incredible and enormous responsibility. To be head means that the husband is supposed to be the first servant of his wife. That's what it means to be head. You are to be the first servant of your wife. He is not some unlimited power or ruler in the family, but a head, again, that is entirely qualified by, interpreted by, and limited by Jesus. Jesus exerts his headship how? By giving himself for his spouse, the church. So headship doesn't equal dictatorship. doesn't mean go get my slippers. That ain't headship. Instead, the husband is to be head by doing all and spending himself on behalf of his wife. The husband is head of the wife, and he exercises a type of authority in such a way that love, only love, is the essence of his authority. He does rule. That's what it means to be head. But he rules as Christ rules. And he is also to be subordinate to his wife. Again, following the model of Jesus, who gave himself up for us all. This is a great way to think about this, huh? You men, husbands, your role as head is to remind your wife more than anybody of Jesus. That's your role. More than anybody, your role is to remind your wife of Jesus. You want a task? You just got a task. No one is supposed to do that more than you. By your humble love, by your witness of self-sacrifice. That is what your wife is not only to expect, that is what she is entitled to. She is entitled to be loved by you in such a way that makes visible more than anybody Christ. We just lost a, one of the founding members of the parish last night. Kind of tragically died and went into the hospital two weeks ago with stomach pains, died two weeks later been in great health her whole life. And her husband obviously is devastated. I was thinking of them coming into this talk tonight because it's been sobering for all of us in the staff and for those of us in the parish who know them. And, and thinking of Joe who's going to be kneeling at his wife's casket for the next couple of days and viewings and then at the funeral on Monday. And You are supposed to live your marriage in such a way that when the other person dies, you can kneel at their casket and say, Lord, I thank you for the gift of my spouse. I have tried my whole life long to show forth as best I can something of your love and of your mercy and of your kindness. And I miss him or her greatly. But I thank you that right now she or he is finally receiving that in abundance. Because I was just an image or a taste of it. But now she's got the fullness of it. And I long for the day when I can join her or him with you and all the saints in heaven. We don't know how long we have with each other. We want to try to learn as best we can and as quick as we can what the Lord's word is encouraging us to know so that we can be better husbands and wives, so that we can do what we know we should do for one another starting tonight. 
because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. The exhortation to the husband is simply go ahead and love her, which brings us to the next word, which is love or agape in Greek, which is the core of the Christian life. There's too many places to point out to find it, but I'll give you a couple of texts to go look at in particular. Two of them would be in the Gospel of John. One is John 13, verses 31 to 35. And then again, John 15, verses 12 to 17. And then 1 Corinthians 13, the passage which many of us chose as our second reading at Mass when we were married. Love is patient, kind. Be worth going back and pulling that one out and looking at it as a marriage, huh? Seems so beautiful at the time when we were married. Now, maybe a bit annoying. Actually, a great exercise is to take out the word love, put your name, and see if it's true. And then uh, a last passage would be uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. So what's it mean? In contemporary writing, so writings going on around the time of Ephesians, it isn't found. It doesn't show up. That's not to say that it wasn't used to describe a relationship between a husband and wife. But it is interesting that the wife is not commanded in this text to love her husband. In fact, this is the only command in the whole text. The only command in the whole text is, husbands, you must love. It looks, here it shows up, you know, even so husbands should love their wives. It's not should, guys. It's you must. You are obliged to. You have to. I command you to love your wives. Maybe the husband more than his wife needs to hear this, huh? And it's as yet undefined in the text. It's only going to become clearer as we get on to the next word. But it is being commanded of the husband it should be clear that this has nothing to do with feelings. You can't command feelings. Feelings come and go. So if it's being commanded of you, brothers, then it must have to do with action, and especially with self-sacrificial actions. There's four words for love in Greek. Huh? This is the highest of the four words for love. It doesn't conflict with erotic love or with friendship love, but it surpasses all the other kinds of love in the way that it considers the other's good and it subordinates its own interests by its self-offering and concern for the other person. And again, the model is Christ who handed himself over for his bride. If the author of Ephesians had simply wanted to just kind of baptize or put into the scriptures the normal way that the pagans talked about marriage, then he would have just emphasized the inferior status of the wife because that's what they did. Instead, he does the opposite. He highlights the husband's role, not the wife's role. There's 12 verses in the text that I just gave you. Nine of them are addressed to the guy. Only three of them are addressed to the bride. So in short, this word here again demands, or the demands he was placing on the husband, this author of Ephesians, were literally inconceivable to the Jews and the pagans that were living around the Christians at the time. They would never have thought of saying something like this to a husband. The only command would have been given to the wife. So the author is expecting of the husband nothing less than a love full of self-abnegation, following again the example of Jesus. And as with the first word that we saw, hypotasso, the author really isn't interested in explaining what it means. He's interested in impressing upon the husband a new attitude, a new way of being. It's kind of left to you to figure out how to do that once you understand what it means to be that. Last word is one word in Greek, which gets translated into a number of words in English, either gave himself up for, handed himself over for, or something to that effect. And this is now making specific how the husband is commanded to love. And this word in Greek, paradidomai, or paradokin as it gets uh, translated here, is really a technical term in the scriptures. And it always, always has to do in the New Testament with Jesus' passion. It's a word that refers to Jesus being handed over for us. In Mark chapter 14, verse 10, it's used of Judas handing over Jesus. In Mark chapter 15, verse 1, it's used of the Sanhedrin's handing over of Jesus to Pilate. In Luke 23, verse 25, it's used of Pilate handing over Jesus to the will of the people. In Mark 15, 15, it's used of the soldiers handing Jesus over for execution. Of Galatians 2.20, one of, if not, in fact, the favorite verse of Pope Benedict XVI, it's used of Jesus handing himself over for us. So what does it mean? Well, what we said, huh? it's used of Christ handing himself over for the church, and it becomes a further clarification for the way a husband is to love his wife. There's really only one thing to kind of emphasize. 
The main point of the word is you must be willing to die, really, to self-sacrifice, to pour yourself out. That's the command. Someone once wrote on this text, if it is right to see the first part of this text that we're looking at, the first part being be subject to one another or subordinate yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, If it's right to see that as an announcement of the theme that is to follow, then we can see that the husband and wife are called to a mutual self-giving that is to be total and totally rules out the idea that one member is superior to the other. This does not preclude the husband's headship nor the wife's subordination, but it does so define those roles that the husband becomes the chief servant like Jesus And the wife, an example of one who responds to her serving lover with loving submission, as the church does in relation to Christ. To live this way is quite simply to be a new creation, to be a new creation. And it is to make the attitude of Jesus our own. He who, for our sake, leapt down from his throne in heaven, became flesh, suffered, died, was buried, rose again, has ascended into heaven, is preparing a place right now for you and me and longs for us to one day share in his abundant life. We can do that now, here and now, by just putting aside our pride, by putting aside our arrogance, by putting aside our selfishness, by seeking, truly seeking, the interest of the other first, by seeking every day to outdo your spouse in showing generosity and being kind, and being compassionate, to make of your life a life of self-sacrifice and service. There's obviously lots more that we can say, and we can use the question and answer for much of it. But again, what I'm hoping is that our discussion tonight and what will follow will really prompt some of us to begin to pick up the instruction manual and to talk to the one who is not only the author of marriage, but the author of life, in a culture like ours, which is so desperately in need of getting some input on what it means to be married. As uh, one of the contemporary Christian bands says, you know, what if we stop and turn to Jesus and stopped asking Oprah what to do? Well, here's the Lord. Thanks be to God. He has given us revelation and truth in his word. One of the things that should come from our monthly series is, Those of you just to kind of begin to network with each other and say, you know what, why don't we do a couple's Bible study? And we can help you to do that. But that's the kind of thing that the more we can just soak in the word of God and soak in truth, the more we can learn what it is we're supposed to be, and then the more we can act according as we should. After his talk, Father Ricardo took some questions from the couples attending. I just want to, uh, for the sake of getting a discussion going, since we didn't talk about anything practical, I'll give you a... Four things, kind of practical, to get us going. In fact, the first one is probably more practical than you want, because it has to do with sex. If we really want to live this, and if we really understand what it means to be a husband or a wife, and to understand what it means to truly love the other, which is to make a sincere and total gift of self to one another, then it shouldn't take too much if we put on the attitude of Christ to understand why the church teaches us that contraception is intrinsically evil, which is to say that it is always, everywhere, all the time, harmful to a relationship. Contraception is that act by which one person does not truly and entirely give himself or herself to the other and does not entirely receive the other. It's being schizophrenic. It's saying two things at the same time. One is, I want to unite myself with you entirely, But it's also saying, I want to unite myself with you entirely except for your fertility, which is not love. I remember um, hearing a conversation between two priests, and one of the priests was trying to advocate a rejection of the church's teaching of contraception. And he says, we're just placing burden after burden and obligation after obligation on these married couples. And the other priest looked at him and says, I think what we're doing is we're neglecting our responsibility to point them to the power of the cross, which was given to them in their sacrament, which is marriage. The power of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection flows through your lives because of the sacrament that you have received 
and the grace that has been bestowed upon you. Just like the power of the resurrection flows through me and having received sacred orders, now it's up to you and to me to call upon that every day. And some days, quite frankly, we don't want to. I'm first in the line. But there is extraordinary power, divine life, which has been given to you so as to love each other in a way way beyond your own strength. We regularly teach here what's known as natural family planning. In fact, we make it a requirement for those couples who are preparing to get married. They have to go through four months of training in natural family planning. They meet once a month for four months. Natural family planning is not the rhythm method. It's not Vatican roulette. It's the same science and technology which created the pill. It's an extraordinary way to honor one another's bodies and yet to be intelligent and reasonable as to how to space children. It's not an issue for some of us in this room, but it is an issue for others of us in this room. It's worth remembering. There are a number of different references for great books if people want to look at to learn more about why the church teaches as she teaches. It's a very concrete way to lay down your lives for each other. Second thing is work and the relationship between you, your job, and your family or your wife or your husband. Which one really has your heart? Which one do you live for? Which one is the priority? And, and this is no easy question. It becomes obviously a constant tension in marriage. And, and it's not just for the men, because it's not uncommon at all for the wife to be the principal breadwinner in the family now and to make more money than her husband does. That's not strange anymore at all. You know, you're supposed to talk more than anybody as husbands and wives, but we all know that that doesn't always happen. But we're as different from each other as we can be and still be human as men and women. We just don't see reality the same. Um, just like men have to learn a lot about their wives and how they think and how they respond to things and how they react to things, one of the things I think that's important for a wife to know is that work for a man is not a means to an end. It's life-giving. It's generative. It's a way of being productive. It's a way of participating in the creation of God. So it's not merely something that I do so as to provide for clothes and shelter and food. It is really life-giving. And I'm not saying that it isn't for women, but I can just tell you for men how it is because this causes so much tension. But hopefully we can be encouraged to continue to be able to communicate better on things, including work. But we have to ask ourselves, where is the priority? Because nothing can be more important than persons. I'll just give you a third thing, then we can do questions. Pray together. If you don't pray together... In some way, begin. Guys, whether you realize it or not, you are in a war. The devil has a vested, very vested interest in your relationship. He wants to destroy it. Why? Because you are not only participating in the love of Christ for his church, you are a witness to your children, to your grandchildren, to those in the world of Christ's love for the church. Therefore, if he can split you, what is the effect? The effect is to weaken the capacity of your children or of the world to believe in Christ's love. He has a very vested interest in your relationship. He hates it. Diabolos means to divide. That's what he has come to do. And one of the ones he wants to divide is husband and wife. You must fight back and you must be smart and you must put on some protection, some covering, use some weaponry. And one of the weapons is prayer. Even if you just pray in silence and even if it's just kneeling at the foot of the bed before you go to bed for two minutes in silence, do something. It's really hard to end the day when you're praying together. Those of you who pray together, you just know that. It's really hard to end the day mad if you pray together. It's just a way for God's healing peace to flow over you. All right, I'm tired of talking. Anybody got any questions? Did I hear you say in terms of the wife, surrender your will and rights to your husband? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Having a bit of a problem a with that, huh? a bit of an huh? issue with it. <laughs> what exactly do you mean by will and rights? Um, well, what, what I don't mean is that, let's make clear what we don't mean. doesn't mean that you should not stand up for yourself. doesn't mean that you shouldn't always demand that you be treated with dignity. doesn't mean any of that. For love not to happen, what's one of the prereqs? One of the prereqs is, I stay here and you stay there and neither one of us moves. We demand the other one to move first. When that happens, nothing happens. No one moves. I mean, if God stood on his rights, we would not be reconciled. And I have a further issue. It seems like in your analogy of marriage, the husband seems to be the Christ figure. Not my analogy, Paul's analogy. Okay, Paul's analogy. 
and the wife is more the church image mm-hmm. in terms of the love. So it seems we're putting on this divine analogy on the husband who's not divine. It's a great question. Understand that in an analogy, theologically speaking, the difference between the things that are being compared in an analogy is always far greater than any similarity. For example, the husband is not the savior of his wife. Christ is the savior of us all. And yet there's an analogy, which is to say that the husband learns something just like me. I learn something about what it means to be a priest from looking at the Lord. The husband learns something about being a husband from looking at the same one. He's not the savior. He's not the redeemer. And in fact, he's a member of the church to which his wife is supposed to be the model. But it's nonetheless still an analogy, which means there's a real likeness between the two, even though the dissimilarity is greater than the likeness. The real likeness is that just as Jesus takes the initiative in laying down his life for his bride, so the husband is supposed to take the initiative and lay down his life for his bride. doesn't mean she's not to lay down her life in response, but it has to do with this kind of initiative which belongs to the husband because it is Christ's. I guess I'm getting stuck on collective will or, you know, if I'm subordinating or putting my will under my husband's, is it the intention to have this collective will? And where as individuals is our role or how are we individuals in this marriage, even though we're obviously one entity or one flesh? Great question. You are one flesh, which doesn't have to do with the act of marriage. It has to do with the reality of marriage. You are one flesh. Here's the paradox. You are one brand new way of being, even though you are still Mary and he is still Tom. You're still the I, Mary, and the I, Tom, still exist in this relationship, and yet they do not exist as they once did. Much like Galatians 2.20, again, when Paul says, I still live my life, but it's no longer I who live. It's Christ living in me. So in a similar kind of way, when you enter into marriage, by surrendering your will, I don't mean that you don't think for yourself or whatnot, but it is more to say that you seek to put the interest of the other first, which becomes especially significant when we go back to like last month's session when we talk about reconciliation and forgiveness, which is one of the most significant parts of any relationship, but most especially in marriage. So you have all these things in tension. You're always going to be a unique person. So am I. I mean, I can't exchange the uniqueness of who I am. I can't even communicate who I am to you fully. There's a non-communicability of the individual person. You can't put into words all that you feel or all that you're thinking. So often you want to take the other person, put them in your head and go, do you get it? But you can't do that. So we try to use words and it only gets worse sometimes. So you're never going to be able to communicate that entirely. The point is just that you have to learn a new way of being, just like I do. I have to surrender my will to the bishop. He wants me to come to Troy, I go to Troy. But what happens here in marriage is, and this is why prayer becomes so significant, a significant issue comes up. School, relocating for a job, taking a new job, going back to work, whatever it might be. Rather than just, I want to do this, honey, I think we should pray about this. Let's set aside some time. Let's pray about this. Let's seek the Lord. Let's see what his mind is and then see if we can come to some harmony in our own. Does that make some sense? So great questions. Here's the good news because, you know, whenever we talk about the scriptural vision of marriage, it's just like we talk about the scriptural vision of priesthood. The moment I start reading it, it's like, ooh, you know, you just feel like a schmo. Like, I haven't done that. I don't live that way all the time. Hmm, that's not who I am. <laughs> you know, you just kind of get lower and lower and lower, and you feel like, is there any hope at all? We have to remember that this is the Word of God, so this is truth. This is given to us to live and to strive for, but at the same time, if you're sitting there going, wow, you know, we've already kind of blown it. Welcome to my world. I mean, we do not live this perfectly, but still we strive to, or hopefully we strive to. We just keep getting back up. But I'm I'm always aware whenever we look at what God's plan for marriage is, it's hard not to hear it and be really sobered because there's very few of us who really knew what we were doing when we got married. That's why we do so much. That's why we make the couples who get married here go through so much because they don't know what they're doing. And they're not listening. That's why we do this series now because now you're listening. (laughs) It's like, wow, what was that talk again? 
said something about forgiving. Do we have to do that? Monday and Wednesday, right? If you hear this, be sobered, be convicted, be moved to change if the Lord's pushing you on something, but don't be beat up. The Lord just wants to like put a little spur into us and go, hey, I got more for you. We talked about the devil being the divider. He's also Satan, which is the accuser. So he just loves to point his finger and go, you don't live this well at all. You just tell him to go back to hell where he belongs. And try to hear the Lord's voice to say, Lord, what is it I'm supposed to do? How can I be a better wife or a better husband in this marriage so that it can be a more authentic witness to the world of your love for the church? But it is sobering. I know that. A comment on just from reading one passage, and it's a more societal comment than on our marriages probably, but the first was how for the last, my lifetime certainly, but society's been stressing that men and women are the same. Probably it started as an admirable goal as to equality in the workplace and things like that, but we're not the same, as you just pointed out, and God did not intend us to be the same. We're very different people, and it's clear from that passage certainly. The second thing that struck me was, I always look at homosexual marriage because I'm an attorney from the legal standpoint, and that's a different issue than the church recognizing marriage, but it's just absolutely comical to think about homosexual marriage when you read that passage. And people should probably reflect upon that and address it in that standpoint because you can get a lot of people to agree with you that, of course, I believe in the Bible. Of course, I believe Jesus exists. Okay, well, let's talk about what's in the Bible. And then all of a sudden that hits them in the face. And instead of coming from, a, oh, you're an intolerant person, no, you're a person who loves God. And you start with the Bible and then you work from there. So, just... In order to understand life, we have to work top down which applies to both your comments. First of all, we have a very hard time understanding how people can be equal and different. But that must be the case, and the reason that that's the case is the Trinity. The grounding for all reality is the Trinity. The Trinity are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, absolutely equal in dignity, who are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. You and I have been created in the image and likeness of God, which tells us, first of all, that we're made for relation, But it also helps us understand how it can be that we can be different and still equal because there is distinctness and equality within the Trinity. I remember giving these talks like eight years ago. I saw some notes in a talk I gave six years ago that said something like, mark my words, it won't be long and we'll see in our country it'll be commonplace for same-sex marriage to be allowed. We went to bed one night, woke up, and this happened. And this is a done issue. Historically, in the blink of an eye, marriage got redefined. And it got redefined for lots of different reasons, but certainly not least of which is our culture only understands marriage as a human institution, as a private relationship, devoid of any sacramental meaning, which means it's not participating in the love of Christ and his church, nor is it a witness to that. But if we're not steeped in scripture, if we're not steeped in the church's teaching, if we don't have lives of prayer, what else are we going to come up with? That's why I'm as excited as I am to see as many scripture studies that happen here, as many ongoing faith formation things that happen here, because if you compare the amount of time that you spend watching TV and reading a book and reading the paper to how much time you read scripture, it's not a good comparison. No wonder this sounds like it's in Greek. On this edition of Christ is the Answer, Father Ricardo's title was Marriage, God's Love Made Visible. He spoke about marriage preparation, trust, and how men and women can be and are equal and yet be as different as we can be. This has been Crisis the Answer program number 800. For a CD of this or any of our programs, online go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 800. Love Made Visible. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.